Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 12th, 2014. This is episode 1463 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to take a look at genetically modified organisms. I haven't really gotten deep into the subject for a long time. And then for those of you who have heard my take on GMOs in the past, this is a totally new take. Because I'm going to ask the question, can there be an upside? Can there be any good to come from GMOs? And those that are screaming, no, 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 oh my God, ah, stop, relax, calm down. Uh, nothing that I've told you has changed. In fact, I'm still one of the most anti-GMOs in the conventional sense there is out there. But there are new things to look at and consider uh, in the world of being highly scientific with research into the genetic makeup of plants and what that could mean in a positive light and why it probably won't, though. We have to be honest and we have to be pragmatic when we look at things like this. We cannot be overly emotional. I'll talk about that more in just a bit. Before that, let me go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one, BulkAmmo.com. I talk about it all the time, the triangle of gun operator efficiency. Got to have a gun, got to be trained, but you got to have ammo. You can take the most highly trained operator out there and give him a gun and give him no ammo. He's probably going to get himself killed in a conflict. Because he looks dangerous, and he isn't. He's got an overpriced club. You have to have the ammo in case you need its terminal performance. And you have to have the ammo because at some point you have to run that gun and train with it. And hey, sometimes we just need to put meat on the table. So check it out today, BulkAmmo.com. It's where I get my large purchases of ammo, and I think it's where you should too. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that is what it is, does what it does, and says what it does right in its name. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point, click, and buy on their website. ReadyMadeResources.com. They've got it all from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it at ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let us look at the year 1463. Uh, in the TSP Wiki, I have three uh, history segments from Alex Shrug today at TSPWiki.com. Taking liberties and taxing the dead. Villain escapes a hanging. Bosnia falls to the Ottomans. Um, the Bosnia thing is actually a big deal because we see its modern events even through to this day. Villain escapes a hanging is interesting because the guy's name is Villain. He was a scoundrel. And uh, you can learn more by reading about those two things at the wiki. I'm going to read Taking Liberties and Taxing the Dead because Alex's take brings it most close to uh, modern day. For the last few years, the English commons have been asserting its independence It has insisted on proper elections rather than letting the sheriffs manipulate the votes in favor of the wealthy. The Commons has the final say over who may be seated. If a member of Parliament or MP is traveling to or from Westminster in the performance of his duties, he may not be arrested. An MP can speak freely in Parliament and not be called to account or be arrested even when he criticizes the royalty. You would think that's no big deal, but at the time, it was a big deal. Off with his head would be something that could easily just end somebody's protest. Anyway, to counterfeit, to counter this, parliamentary independence, King Edward IV has called Parliament in his session as little as possible. The policy will continue until 1485, when the first Tudor king will assert direct rule retroactively, 
by declaring himself king before he took the throne, thus making treason against the king retroactive before he was the king. Do you get that doublespeak? I was already king because it was destined that I would be king. Therefore, your acts before I was king were treason against me. And now I can hold you accountable for doing them. That can't possibly happen today, can it? Huh. Here's two legislative oddities from Alex Shrugs take uh, this spring to mind immediately. The first is the arrest of Congressman Patrick Kennedy in 2006 when he drove his car into a barricade while drunk. Initially, he claimed he was headed to Congress for a vote. That might have been a good defense since congressmen cannot be held by the police on their way to vote. But it was 2.45 in the morning. He went to rehab and paid a $350 fine. The second legislative oddity is the retroactive taxation that President Bill Clinton signed into law. The Congress backdated the law so that it applied before Clinton became president. That trapped people before they could avoid the additional tax. For example, any person who had died did not have the option of rewriting his will to avoid taxation. In essence, the government was taxing the dead and actually changing the rules of the tax after you died. Isn't that cool? That's exactly the same thing. The retroactive tax that was implemented by President Bill Clinton that actually taxed income that was earned prior to him taking office was exactly the same as a king in the 1400s, 1500s era saying, well, I was always going to be king, therefore what you did before applied to me, and therefore you committed treason against me. The more things change, the more they stay the same, folks. And uh Little side note on Patrick Kennedy. So he gets drunk off his ass, crashes into a barricade, argues with and lies to the police. He pays a $350 fine and gets rehab. What do you think you'd get if you got drunk at 2.45 in the morning, crashed into a barricade, and argued with the police and lied to them about being on your way to someplace you were never going? What do you think would happen to you? Do you think you would have got a little, yeah, let's go to rehab and 350 bucks? Are you kidding me? I'll tell you what, most of us, if that had happened to us, it would be extremely life-altering and for some literally would have ruined their life. I'm not saying we should all be able to drive around drunk. What I am saying is it's clear there's two standards for people. There's, there's the big club that you're not in, and their standards are different than ours. Even when they violate the laws that they swear to uphold and defend, and once again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you support the show at uh, 18.3 cents or something like that an episode. Call it 20 cents an episode. When you get done with an episode of the Survival Podcast, if you think that's worth at least two dimes, consider joining, and then you'll get great discounts, and your membership will pay for itself. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. First responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount. Uh, to thank you for your service to our nation at home or abroad, email me before you join service discount in the subject line. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put uh, one or two sentences about your service. I'll send you that discount back. And with that, let us get into the main topic today, genetically modified organisms. And is there any way there's possibly an upside? Now, I'm known as the staunch opponent of GMOs or genetically modified organisms. These are plants or animals where scientists have literally altered the genetic code artificially. Most of the time this is done with a bacteria or a virus. They take a gene that they want to go into this new DNA molecule, and they infect the bacteria or virus with the gene. And when the bacteria or virus then attaches itself to the new gene, 
and infects it, instead of transmitting whatever the virus or the bacteria normally would transmit, it transmits the uh, the the trait that they're looking to carry over. In other words, it would be either a transmugenic virus or a transmugenic bacteria. That's what we're playing around in these little peachy, petri dishes with. Think about that. We take a bacteria and we use it to infect something and transmit a gene. All kinds of wrong can happen with that, but, you know, all kinds of wrong can happen with a lot of science. And I'm known as this huge opponent of GMO, and with good reason. I loathe companies like Monsanto. Uh, and I consider many of their products as primary contributors to many of America's modern disease epidemics. I think if people were consuming less glyphosate and atrazine and 2,4-D and all these other chemicals that these GMOs enable us to consume, we'd have a lot less autoimmune and inflammatory response, and most modern diseases have their genesis and roots in those things. So, yeah, I'm really, really opposed to that type of thing. But what many don't know is in the beginning, I didn't oppose GM at all, GMO at all. I really didn't. I had the same reaction back then that many today have to those of us in the anti-GMO camp. Uh, I figured that the anti-GMO hype was nothing but a bunch of people afraid of science. And there are people that are just afraid of science. And they don't like anything new. And in the words of Wayne from Wayne's World, we fear change. And the other people that were opposed to it were like ultra-natural, pur purple-breathing uber-hippies. And, and that was, I was like, oh, shut up. But then I learned about what was really going on. In the beginning, the promise of GMO was things like corn that was more drought-resistant and pest-resistant. Now, who in their might, right mind would resist that uh, if, if it could be done safely? So there was like, the, the plan was we're going to make this corn. And you're going to have to water it less. That's all. And we have to modify it to make it do that. Okay. I, I, you know, And at the time, I was like most people. I was in my career. I was working 80 hours a week. I only had so much time to pay attention to things like that. But even now, I can look back and go, yeah, I understand why people bought into that. But then there were five major things that I learned about. Right about the time I started this podcast, uh, which would have been back in 2008, that changed my view dramatically on GMOs. The first was the concept of patenting life forms and then persecuting farmers with cross-pollinated seed, the most famous of whom is a guy named Percy Smizer in, in, uh, in Canada. And what happened to Percy was he ended up with GMO canola growing around the peripheral edges of his farm. And that GMO canola cross-pollinated with his organic canola. Now understand, this man had been growing organic canola for decades. He never grew GMO on purpose. He actually did use Roundup, but he used it like in the pole lines and things like that to keep weeds down out there, not on his fields. So there's some wild-growing canola out there, and one day he sprays it and it lives. And he realizes, I've got GMO canola here. That's the only way that thing would live. He destroys his entire crop that year. <clears throat> takes a huge financial loss, replants the next year, but the genes are still there. And it continues to cross-pollinate into his crop, and he does the best he can to eliminate it. But eventually Monsanto says the, sends the seed police to his, his property, which they do, uh, which they need no warrant. They go onto your property. They're not law enforcement. They take samples of your, your plants without your consent, They do their own testing on it, and then they assess a fine against you for violating their patent. 
And that's what they did to Percy Smizer. And he fought it all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court and said, listen, I don't want their genes on my property. They put their genes on my property. I have no desire for this to be here. They've damaged me. And Monsanto said, nuh-uh. Percy stole our property. Doesn't matter how it got there. He stole it. He's possessed in possession of our genes. Not pure Monsanto seed, but the genes that we own are now in his seed, and he owes us for those genes. And the court sided with Monsanto and said it did not matter how the genetic property got into Smizer's possession, only that it did. Now, <clears throat> this violates thousands and thousands of years of common law and common agreed-upon procedures in agriculture. It goes all the way back to biblical things listed in, in books like Leviticus, where basically that it is my responsibility to fence my cattle in to my land, not your responsibility to fence my cattle out of, your, of yours. Okay, that's very It's very simple. That if I am the one bringing the offender into the situation, I must control it. This flipped 10,000 years of accepted agricultural practices on its head and basically said that you could persecute somebody who you've actually damaged in the first place. So that right there was enough. Like, okay, we shouldn't be doing that. The next is the existence of a terminator gene and its danger of outcrossing. So Monsanto decides, well, we can't have these people stealing our seeds. It makes us look bad when we go out and persecute farmers with our seed police, which they're still doing because they have not been able to do the next thing. I'm going to tell you about this terminator gene. So what they decided they would do, they would, they would genetically design the seed so that it would only produce new seed in the next generation if it was sprayed with a certain chemical at a certain time. And then you don't sell that chemical to the public. So I go to Farmer Joe, and I sell him 400 pounds of soybean seed for his fields. He puts it out in the field. He grows his soybeans. If he wants to cheat me because I own the life form, he could save some seed back and plant it again next year and sell off the rest as a grain product and not have a seed expense. So I'll put this Terminator gene in there, and the seed will be sterile. And the only way the seed won't be sterile is if I spray it at the right time with the right thing. Well, The problem with that is outcrossing, right? So we already know it can outcross because it did the Percy Smizer's field and many other farmers' fields that Monsanto's gone after. So if the Terminator gene crosses out and you're growing organic, open-pollinated soybean with no intellectual property protection and that Terminator gene gets into your seed, eventually your seed could stop reproducing. And Monsanto says that that can't happen, but it absolutely can You can't control that. So that was another thing that, like, we're really playing with things we shouldn't. They wanted to do this, and so far there's no GMO wheat or oats or rye or things like that, but they, they had planned to do it, and they wanted to do it in all of those and in corn and soy and cotton. So those are some of the biggest crops in the world, and that their hope was that they would prevent this theft of their property, if you want to call it that, but the danger was... They could have literally wiped out the reproductive capacity of all of these crops and any other crop they inserted this gene into. Basically, the Terminator gene, and some people don't understand what it is, and the, the uber-purple-breathing hippies that are out there freaking out about it think it's to kill you or kill other plants. The plant kills itself. And we don't really want to transmit that gene. So that was another one. Um, the next one was 
the modification of plants to be sprayed with dangerous herbicides, which are then ingested. You have to understand how an herbicide works to understand how dangerous it is for you to consume it. So let's look at the most popular one out there today, Roundup. So Roundup literally causes plants to grow themselves to death. It, it causes uh, an erratic hormonal override in the plant that causes it to begin reproducing uh, at the cellular level at such a rapid rate that it kills itself. It literally grows itself to death. When you spray a plant that's been modified to not do that, it doesn't change the chemical in Roundup at all. It simply makes the plant not have that response to it. So now I modify a soybean and I spray it with Roundup. And I soak it with Roundup. I soak the whole field with it. It goes into the roots. It goes into the leaves. Um, the roots take it up into the plant and the leaves that are hit with it have the same foliar effect feeding that if I spray um, a, a fertilizer on a plant, like a compost tea, it goes in through the leaves and it takes that into the plant. And then you have to understand something about plants and where they concentrate things. So one thing the soybean will concentrate is nitrogen. And the hierarchy of nitrogen is as follows in the soybean. Yes, it's higher in the bacteria that are on the plant's roots, the little nodules that affix themselves to legumes, but that's not really the plant. The plant concentrates the nitrogen that it exchanges with those bacteria in the following order. One, the seed. Two, the pod. Three, the leaf. Four, the, the green stems. And, and five, the hard stems. Okay, So the highest is in the seed. Pretty much everything else that plant accumulates it follows that hierarchy. So that means the majority of this chemical that the plant absorbs is concentrated in the seed along with nitrogen and other things. So you're getting a concentrated dose. And they put this stuff in everything that you eat. Corn, it's really atrazine more than, than Roundup. And then soy, it's, it's Roundup. And then cotton, it's Roundup. There's cottonseed oil and everything. So we have now started feeding the American people herbicides that cause hormonal imbalances in plants that cause them to grow themselves to death. This was a reason to oppose GMOs. The next thing was they started modifying. So they said we're going to make pest-resistant plants. Well, if you wanted to make a pest-resistant corn, you could go back and look at, well, how did we do this in the past with breeding? Hickory King corn is a very... Uh, resistant to the, the, the cornworm corn because the husks on the corn are very, very thick. It's harder for the worm to get in there. So it's, it's resistant. It's not immune, but it has a lot less cornworm, corn earworm damage than other corns. So we could genetically modify corn. This is me in my optimistic days about GMO to have a very thick husk. Imagine if we made the husk six layers thicker than it is. The corn was the same inside. Well, it, you'd still lose some, but the yields would go through the roof, and the resistance to the insect would go through the roof. The insect would still get some. The population of insects would stay somewhat in check and in balance, and natural predators come in. And now I can spray less insecticide so the beneficial insects that feed on the caterpillars can get there. So this seemed like a good idea. Instead, what they did was they bred in the ability for the plant to produce its own pesticide. 
so that the worms eating the corn were being infected with a bacteria called Bacillus thungosus, or BT, right, which is a natural occurring bacterium that infects caterpillars and other worms. Um, <clears throat> by superloading it into the plant, they had a tremendous result initially because all the worms that ate any of the corn died. <clears throat> so it had a great effect the first year and an even better effect the next year and an incredible effect the third year. Then something happened about the fourth year that this shit was out there. The worm population started to come back up and the damage started to come back up because only the worms immune to this bacteria survived. Now, that's always been going on, but it's been sporadic and spread out. We concentrated it through millions and millions of hectares of corn, of monocropped corn that attracted all of these insects to one location and supercharged the result of a worm that's now resistant to BT. So now we're creating super pests. Okay, And then the other thing we did is we did the same thing with the modification to let us spray the soybeans with Roundup. Instead of suppressing weeds with an herbicide, which is what conventional farming had always done, which would be I'd go out and I'd spray an herbicide on my, on my field in the off-season. I'd kill the weeds, and I'd give it time to dissipate. And UV light is what breaks down most herbicides. So I, I wouldn't spray it when the field was in full you know, soybean. Right? It was a sparsely planted, recently plowed field, and I would suppress the weeds, and I'd wait for the effects of the herbicide to go off, and then I would go in and I would plant my seed. And this meant I could only do this so often, every so many years, and I would spray the, the fence lines and things with an herbicide to keep them from encroaching into the field. Now I can just spray it on the field. So now I holst, now I have millions and millions of hectares of, of soybeans, and I kill all the weeds. And I kill all the weeds. And I kill all the weeds. And the same thing happens. By being such a mass murderer of weeds, I have inadvertently now created super weeds that are resistant to Roundup. So now I have to get another harsher herbicide like 2,4-D, which is one chemical away from Agent Orange. Agent Orange, as in Vietnam, as in, oh, by the way, Monsanto made that too. Okay, just saying. Now I have to spray that. Oh, and by the way, there's weeds that are resistant to that, so now I spray with both. And where do I get my chemicals? From the people that made the seed that allowed me to spray the seed in the first place, Monsanto. So when all of that came together, yes, I became very opposed to GMOs. This was not the original purpose of GMOs. Okay? They were, you know, but it was always the goal. These companies knew what they were doing. Monsanto doesn't make money selling seed. Monsanto makes money selling chemicals. The seeds are like a byproduct. They are the thing that drives the sale of the chemicals. Okay? Um, and this is a typical thing that companies like Monsanto did. There's a link in today's show notes you can find where they poisoned the people of Anniston, Alabama for decades. They hid the information that, that they were poisoning them. And then they said, in fact, their CEO said, I'm proud of what we did. I'm proud of what we did there. Could have been done better, but overall I'm proud of what we did. He's proud that he's given thousands of people cancers. And this is not like debatable whether or not. The, the, the rate of these diseases in Anniston is through the roof compared to anywhere else in the country. And they're proud of what they did. So let's talk about exactly 
what a GMO really is one more time before I go on to why there could be upsides to it so that we understand exactly what the difference is. There's been a major misinformation campaign put out by the producers of these GMOs that man has always done genetic modification. By the way, Monsanto's backpedaling on this now because they're doing what man has always done, but they're doing it better. And they are doing it better. I'll admit that. Um, but when we take corn and we put it in the field and we pick all the corn and then we pick the best corn and we put it aside for seed and we plant it again and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. That's man and the plant coexisting and we're genetically modifying the plant. The corn of today that was, that was made from that process looks nothing like the root plant, seoente, that corn came from. And we can say that about wheat. We can say that about rye. We can say that about tomatoes. All the tomatoes that grew naturally grew in deserts, and they were yellow. And they weren't that great tasting. And people were afraid to eat them for a long time because they're nightshade, so they thought they were poisonous. Um, and and that this modification process is normal and natural. And it's how humans and plants coexist. The problem is that's an outright lie. Genetic modification is not selective breeding. Selective breeding is selective breeding. Selective breeding is I take a, a, a chicken, like I'm doing right now, a Rhode Island Red, and I breed it to an Egyptian Faomi, and I get its babies. I take its babies, and I breed them to each other, and then I select from that the ones that continue to have the traits that I want, and I keep outcrossing that until I get a stable new breed that I call a Red Pharaoh, and then I say, this is a new chicken. And if you buy two of them and put them together and they make babies, they will make babies that look like themselves. And they have these characteristics. And I have worked with these animals to create that. That's natural breeding. A GMO would be, I'm looking at one of my geese looking in the window at me right now. Geese get big, bigger than chickens. I'd like my chicken to get big like a goose. So I'll go in and I'll extract one of the genetic components or multiple genetic components from the goose that specifically lead to the goose's larger size. I will then take those genes and put them into a bacteria or a virus, and I will use the bacteria or a virus that I control to infect the embryo, embryonic DNA of a chicken and see what I get and make super chickens. Okay, the goose and the chicken will not crossbreed in nature. So right there, we're out the window on it. But that level of selection can't occur in nature, ever. It just can't. We can keep breeding bigger and bigger chickens, And we can select for that trait. And we can take different breeds of chickens and different chicken genetics, and we can cross them through breeding where a rooster fertilizes a hen, and we can take that egg and grow that baby, and that's naturally selective breeding. And GMO is not that. So it's very important you understand that before we, we go on. But what we have to start asking ourselves is with all this technology that Monsanto has, Could it be used for good? And could GMO be used for good? Let's talk about it two different ways. So right now, Monsanto is getting big time into the hybrid vegetable game. Big time. And they're not doing it with GMOs. They're not genetically altering the plants. But they are using very sophisticated genetic mapping. Okay, So think of it this way. Now... What if I could, before I waited for that little chicken to grow up, go in and take a blood sample 
of my all like a hundred Rhode Island red roosters, a little blood sample, and I had a thousand Egyptian Faomi hens, and I took a little blood sample of them, and I did a genetic marker test, and I found all of the birds that would have the characteristics that I wanted, and out of that thousand roosters and ten thousand hens, I came up with you know a hundred roosters and a thousand hens, and I only bred those, and then I took the subsequent generation of those those birds and I did the same thing again and I just shortened my breeding period by identifying the specific genes that I wanted and not having to breed the animals and wait for a chicken to grow to see if it was there this is what Monsanto's doing at a a level so sophisticated it's it's kind of mind-boggling they're able to take little bits of the genetic makeup of different seed samples and look at not only what is the genetic makeup of this lettuce seed and this lettuce seed, but if we were to cross them a forecast of what the result would be, this will make a bigger, more drought-resistant, crispier lettuce. Okay? That time, with, with quite a bit of accuracy. And there's a huge article on this that I'll have a link in today's show notes for, for you on Wired that, that goes into this. I can't read it. It's just too long. But that's the basics of it. So instead of now going in and pulling out the genes, I just simply identify the genes I want to cross. Now, this is pretty interesting. And I don't like that it's Monsanto because I don't trust them, and I'll give you a whole list of reasons why, as though I haven't already made the case for that and what you've already heard these people have done. But they are a corporation that wants to make money, and there is money in producing these seeds. And the public doesn't want GMO. By and large, the public is opposed to genetically modified seed. They really are, with good reason. So... There's a sweet spot here for this company to do two things, make some money and have a PR win, which is important. They have a huge PR department, and you, you kind of need one when you're the scum of the earth. I'm just saying. And then this is also just a completely different sector for Monsanto. A lot of the things that they, they, they do with evil GMOs in the grain and mass-produced crops world just simply don't translate well here or are not necessary. So if I'm growing lettuce, uh, I'm growing lettuce anywhere from, you know, as a microgreen 14 days at the most uh, to a baby lettuce at 20 some odd days to maybe 40 days. So I don't really care about weeds because with either mulch or tilling, by the time the weed becomes a problem, the lettuce is cut, the weed is cut, and I'm back to making more lettuce. Most of these crops are short-term crops or they're crops that aren't heavily impacted by weeds. Broccoli is a cold crop. We grow it in cool weather. Um, it's pretty fast-growing. And most of these vegetables are grown in a different type of farm. Even a big vegetable farm is very different than a big corn farm. You don't harvest tomatoes with a combine. You don't harvest broccoli with a combine. So the idea of scorching the earth so only your thing grows so that you can run a combine through it doesn't apply here. So the incentive to do these things is different. They're not trying, at least for now, to make a pepper that I can spray with Roundup. They're simply trying to make a pepper that tastes better. It's a different size, a different shape, a different amount of uniformity, different richness in color. 
And all of this can be done. And I, I'll liken it to this. If, if you said to me, well, Jack, you're trying to make you know your, your good jalapenos even better. How are you doing that? And I said, well, I select for a couple of things. I want them to be thick-walled. I want them to turn red and have good flavor. And I'm also selecting for survivability because when something dies, it, it doesn't have uh, the ability to give me any seed. And usually you try to select for two traits. And when I initially started selecting, I selected for, I took peppers off the plants that seemed to thrive and, and have the best survivable uh, genetics. And I took seed from red peppers on those plants. That was it. I didn't look for big. I didn't look for thick. I didn't look for hot. I didn't look for flavor. I just if, if, the, if the peppers turned red faster than the other peppers, I took the seed from those peppers. I did that for a while. And then I started being more, now I started having red peppers everywhere, right? I mean, like, you'd go out and 80% of the peppers on the plant would be red. And down the road, a guy's growing jalapenos. He's got like three that are red, and the rest are all green. And so then I started saying, I'm going to pick only the biggest red peppers. And I did that for a while. And then I said, now that I'm getting big red peppers, now I'm going to look at the ones, I'm going to actually cut them open. I'm going to put two side by side. I'm going to take the seed out of the one with the thickest walls. And if I try to do all those characteristics in one generation, it never happens. So it takes multiple generations to get this genetic selection. Now, what if someone could have come in, took a hundred pepper plants that I had growing, and said to me, save just these seeds. These have the most characteristics you're looking for right now. Just save those seeds. And then next season said, just save those seeds. And then next season said, just save those. I didn't have to look at them. Ones that even didn't appear to be carrying the genetics, but were carrying the genetics, or were carrying a preponderance of the positive genetics, could have been selected. Now, what if I had been crossing the jalapeno with a serrano to make a long, thin, thick-walled jalapeno? This is possible. And someone could say, Take those seeds and those seeds and put them together and you'll get faster where you want to go. I'm not actually doing anything different. I'm just accelerating the timeline of development. That's what they're doing right now. Now, let's move over to something totally different. Let's move over to some actual use of GMO that if done right, could be used for good things. This is on ARS Technica and it's called... GMO trees could rescue the American chestnut from invasive fungus. Here we go. The relationship between the U.S. public and genetically modified organisms is a bit ambu ambiguous. Efforts to label GMO foods were defeated in California, while some Hawaiian islands have banned the planting of GMO crops. But for most Americans, these issues remain pretty abstract. That may change thanks to the work taking place in upstate New York. Their scientists are planning the return of an American icon in a genetically modified form. And if all goes well and according to plan, 10,000 GMO chestnut trees could be ready to plant in as little as five years. People could find them in parks and playgrounds and even in their neighborhood neighbor's yards. The American chestnut was once a major feature in the Appalachian forests, with its range covering the entire East Coast. But it fell victim to an invasive species. A fungal blight has pretty much wiped out the species in its native range. A few nearly dead trees sporadically send out shoots, and survivors outside its normal range are the only reasons we still are able to even grow any American chestnuts. 
efforts to restore the tree initially focused on in interbreeding with Asian chestnuts that is resistant to the fungus. But the resistance turned out to be complex, conveyed by a mix of seven different genes that makes it a lot harder to produce something that's both resistant and primarily carries the American chestnut genome. The long generation, generation time for trees has made matters worse. So I'm going to pause there a second. So now let's think about this. If I plant 100,000 American chestnut seeds and 50,000 survive and none of them are blight resistant, I don't really know that for 15 years. And then I can cut them all down and do it again and do it again. And do it again. And pretty much I'm out of years. I'm dead. So hopefully somebody else is doing it. So that's what they're saying there. Um, researchers at Sunny College of Environmental Science and Forestry, however, thought it might be easier to engineer resistance. The fungus, Cridophonetica parasitica, that infects the tree. I said that right. Wow. Uh, the trees causes many of its lethal effects through the chemical called oleic acid. Many plants carry genes that break oleic acid down into simpler chemicals. Why not insert one of these genes into the American chestnut? The researchers started with a gene that's already field tested in humans. The wheat version of ole uh, oxal <laughs> now I messed that up oxalate oxidase to get it. So in other words, you already eat this is what they're saying. It's already in wheat. They didn't put it there. The wheat already has it. Like this just exists. You eat it. Uh, organic wheat has this stuff inside it. To get it into the chestnuts, they in, now here we go. This is what I was talking about. This is what a, what a GMO means. To get it into chestnuts, they inserted it into a special piece of DNA carried by a bacteria that infects plants. When these modified bacteria were given a chance to infect chestnut cells, instead of inserting their own DNA, they now insert the wheat gene, providing the American chestnut with protection that it currently lacks. The chestnut cells could then be treated with a combination of chemicals that triggered them to act like an embryo, causing them to grow roots and a stem. By 2010, the efforts had made it to the point where the lab was growing its first generation of transgenic seedlings, and the tests were promising. Although these plants didn't resist the fungus as well as the Asian chestnut, they held up far better than the unmodified American chestnut. And the researchers quickly, at least as quickly as trees would allow, confirmed that the inserted genes could be passed on to the next generation. But performing these experiments was a bit more complicated than normal plant breeding might be. The flowers that were fertilized with pollen from the genetically modified plants had to be placed in plastic bags, in part to keep the other pollen out, but in part to contain the genetically modified pollen as the flowers matured into chestnuts. They had to be enclosed with wire mesh. Larger bags made of aluminum window screen were secured around each pollination bag to prevent animal disturbance and keep the resulting nuts contained. In addition, the work contained a metabolite analysis. Essentially, researchers showed the nuts produced by the GMO trees aren't chemically distinct from unmodified chestnuts. This is a key test for something that may eventually end up eaten or either knowingly eaten either knowingly or unknowingly. So when they when they took the chestnut and said, "Is there anything in here that would hurt people?" and they tested it in a lab, the, the answer they got was no. So as far as these results are concerned, the strain of chestnut is ready for restoration to the tree's previous habitat. But as far as the U.S. as a whole is concerned, it is not there yet. Before it can be planted outside of a controlled environment, uh, the trees have to be approved by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, which I'm sure will take a very long time compared to, you know, 
uh, a plant that they're going to spray with a chemical and feed you. Anyway, the process of obtaining those approvals is expected to take at least five years. The results, the researchers expect they can have as many as 10,000 of the trees ready to plant by the time the approval occurs. But there's still a matter of public approval. One place these trees might be planted is on public parkland. The areas uh, of protected forests to preserve the habitats where it once thrived may contain many state parks and two national ones. But the mission of these parks is generally to preserve the natural ecosystem, and it's safe to assume that some people will object to transgenic plants being introduced into the natural ecosystem. The other places the trees are likely to go private properties. The research is funded in part by the American Chestnut Foundation, which is enthused about returning the species to the wild. Presumably some of the members will be just as enthused about putting the trees in their yards. Whether their neighbors would be equally enthused is debatable. So far, the debate within the U.S. about the role of genetically modified organisms has been relatively muted compared to that in Europe, and fortunately, the subject has not become a has has not become politically polarized concern about the risk posed by the technology are similar across the public spectrum, but that data also makes it clear that a lot of people do perceive a risk, despite decades of study and the use that uh, haven't revealed any problems. We'll see, that's the problem. See, even when you're reading something like this, Uh, there's been no problems uh, shown uh, by the, the, the use of these, these plants. Uh, bullshit. Because when we fed rats equal amounts of GMO and non-GMO corn and soy, the rats given the GMO developed kidney and liver cancers and died. Equal amounts. So it's a bullshit when they say that. Anyway, back to the article. The use of GMO crops is likely to continue to expand. A recent analysis of global data suggests that GMO crops raise yields and lower pesticide use and increase farmer income. All of those things are lies, by the way. They temporarily raise yields. They temporarily reduce pesticide use, but as soon as you reduce your pesticide use, you're also increasing your herbicide use anyway. And they do not create higher profits for farmers in the long term. They do initially until their effect begins to wane, and then they lower farmers' profits. See, that's my problem here. And there's a couple more sentences that aren't really that important. That whenever positive press about GMO comes out, it's never enough just to tell you the actual good things about it that could be done with it. We always lie about it, too, which it makes it hard to trust somebody, right? So if I'm sitting here telling you that there's, there's this room that we're sitting in has four walls and a door and a window and a ceiling and the wall is painted brown and you can look and observe all that, you're like, yeah, but... If I'm also telling you at the same time that I have a direct phone extension to the President of the United States, and yesterday I was on a spaceship uh, where aliens extracted my DNA for the purpose of creating alien-human hybrids, you might actually even start to doubt that everything I've told you about the room is true. Because I'm clearly a liar. And the entire movement behind GMO is full of liars. Absolute, blatant liars. There's been no proved harmful effects at all sweep under the rug. Okay? It's not possible for them to outcross into the wild sweep under the rug. So when people lie to you in the same breath they're speaking what might be the truth, you even doubt the truth. And I think that's an organized campaign that these people have. But let's talk about this chestnut thing. If you can actually do that, should we? And my instinct is maybe. I really need proof that this isn't going to cause some other sort of harm. But if all you're telling me is through this manipulation, we can make a tree that we infected with a fungus by bringing a plant from another country here that was never supposed to be here and, and, and destroyed that plant 
and there's barely any alive. And by doing basically genetic surgery on the plant so that it can resist the disease that we infected it with, we probably should do that. And there's a whole list of things we could use genetic modification to do that would seem to be beneficial without a lot of additional harm if we're responsible with what we do. But humans have shown themselves to not be responsible. But here's some things we could do. We could use GMOs to make plants with stronger, deeper, larger roots. That right there would give us more drought resistance, but it would give us a more stable, uh, more virulent plant overall. Now, we don't have to make that plant use a chemical to do that. We don't have to make that plant harm other plants to do that or harm the ecosystem to do that. All we would do is something like this. You might look at something that's already closely related, like corn and sorghum. Now, there's the, the, the fact of the matter is sorghum is far more drought resistant than corn. And if you've ever pulled the roots of both out of the ground, you know why. Sorghum roots are huge compared to corn roots of the same size plant. So if we could take, now we got two grasses that are very closely related to each other. And if we could take the gene or gene sequence that makes the roots big in the sorghum and bring it over to the corn, we'd get a more drought resistant and more virulent corn as a whole. Now, there's also a, a, a variety of sorghum called black amber that literally hibernates in the middle of a drought. It looks like it dies. And, and this is a natural plant, right? And then when it rains, it comes back. It's like you're, 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 it's, it's a grass. And it's just taking that care. Corn, sorghum are grasses. The grain you're eating is grass seed. Right? It's just big, juicy, sweet grass seed or big, starchy grass seed, depending on what variety you're growing. So it's like your lawn where it doesn't rain for a few weeks and you don't water it and you have good, resilient grasses in your lawn instead of just you know turf that's all one species of grass and your grass goes brown and it rains and in two days after a big rain, your grass is green again. Same effect in the sorghum. So we could conceivably go into the corn with that gene that causes that black amber sorghum to go into that dormant state and impart that into the corn. And then a stand of corn that got hit with a drought would just basically go into a stasis until such time that the rains returned. And the, the crop might be harvested a bit later in the year in a different time sequence, but it would survive and the farmer wouldn't lose his crop. Now, those are good things for humanity if we don't get abusive in some other ways I'll talk about in a bit. And they don't require us to use chemicals. And they actually require less irrigation. So they take less pressure off the water system. We could do that. This could be done. This was one of the things they said they were going to do, and then they got distracted by doing things to allow them to sell more chemicals. Right? This was one of the things they sold the concept with. That very process, that was one of the things presented to the government. We can do this. They just never did. They never bothered to. Okay? The next thing we could do, we could develop plants to grow to higher BRICS levels or sugar content, to take up more nutrient, to be more nutrient-dense. That could be done. I'm not saying it should be done, but it's a hell of a lot better use of this technology than so it can be sprayed. Right? 
we can we can actually develop plants that would use less water for the same growth rate, not just a deeper root system or a dormancy factor, but actually plants that have the ability to do more with less. Because if we just make bigger roots, yeah, the plant's more drought resistant, but it's just because it can get to more water. If we can actually modify the plant to grow and thrive with less water taken into it, we've really got something there. We could modify things to grow in mutually supportive guilds taking a page from permaculture. So we talked yesterday about cotton and the superweed, uh, which is uh, amaranth, this uh, palmer amaranth that's destroying cotton yields. And for years, farmers used the control method with herbicides with cotton that I talked about at the beginning. But when we made the GMO cotton, we sprayed the cotton with the Roundup, and then we made super amaranth that's resistant to... Uh, Roundup. So one of the things that they've discovered is if you grow rye in with the cotton that you suppress the amaranth, that the amaranth just hates rye. Well, we could actually then maybe do a modified rye that grew really low, that let the cotton get up over it, but still got enough sun to survive. In fact, rye is a cool weather plant. So we could modify it to be more resilient in the heat, grow low in the shade of the cotton, and we could probably then develop tools that would go through and harvest the cotton heads and then come back through and harvest the rye and get two yields. That's just one example of what we could do. By developing plants that have specific traits that lets farmers begin to polyculture, in ways that still allow for automation of harvest. That's only a biculture, that's only two. But it could be done differently. We could make a rye that grows in summers and, and is harvestable at the same time the cotton is to do that. Well, then we could also make a third plant, and we could have a farmer growing three crops simultaneously in rows, complementing each other, and we could do that with, with genetic modification. We can do disease resistance, which is the chestnut thing. But there's one of the I mean the things that kills tomatoes is various blights, early blight, late blight, and several other diseases that basically just once once it infects your tomato plant, it starts climbing up to the bottom and, and you never you never get away from it. And there's ways to handle that organically, but if we could take the genetic traits that make a tomato resistant to that blight and simply make that blight ineffective against the tomato. It could be beneficial. Now, is it possible that the blight fungus would modify itself and adapt around that modification? It's possible, but it's not anywhere near as probable because we're not killing the fungus. We're just simply denying it the ability to kill the tomato. That's entirely different. The fungus can go infect other things. It can do other stuff. Right? We're not selectively killing that fungus. So all those things could be good things done with GMOs. It's not that they're without risk, but the risks are a hell of a lot lower than what we're doing right now. So when I look at the GMO concept, I think that there's something for humanity in it if we could be responsible with it. But why don't I trust the companies then who are behind this? Number one is their track record. When you have a company that's the leading gen genetic modifying organism company in the world, that has a track record that they began their company with the manufacturing of saccharin, 
which is one of the most toxic things. And it's bacteria shit, by the way. The artificial sweetener saccharin is bacteria shit. And saccharin is so much more toxic than people realize because if you test it in a lab, you make it. You make it into its little powdered form or its liquid form. You put it in food or you test it individually. You test it and you say, ah, oh, yeah, it's a little bit, but it's all right. But what happens is when these products are, are shipped and they're in any form that doesn't require refrigeration, they end up in the back of a truck and they get the temperatures over 110 degrees, there's alterations of that product that actually make it far more carcinogenic and toxic. And the people making it know that, and they don't worry about it. Because they have laboratory results to say it's safe if handled the way we say it should be handled. And we'll just ignore the fact that everybody knows all this shit is transported in unrefrigerated freight cars and unrefrigerated freight trucks. And that many warehouses have temperatures in grocery stores that hit those temperatures with all the reserve stock. So we'll just poison people. Or Aniston, Alabama, we know we're poisoning people for decades. We'll just hide that. And then when we get caught, we'll say we're proud of what we did. We had to protect our shareholders. They, they, you know, this is the company that brought you Agent Orange. This is the, the company that brought you DDT. And this is a company that even if there's an independent company doing really good stuff, when they get to a point where they're going to be profitable, Monsanto has so much money, they step in and buy them, acquire them. They do spinoffs so that it doesn't have the Monsanto name, and then they roll them back in. I mean, their track record is abysmal. These are people that have persecuted farmers whose fields they've infected with their genes. They have set up Gestapo seed police. Listen, you might think that's a stretch, but if, I, if I'm a private company and I set up my own police force and I say that police force has a right to come on your property just because you're engaged in the activity of farming, to take your material without warrant or cause, when you've never done business with me and have no contract with me, by the way, to test that material and assess a fine on to you, and if you don't pay it, I can make the government make you pay me. What word would you use for that? There's no constitutional rights in that. The track record, and it just can go on, but I've beat up on them enough. Absolutely abysmal. Next is unintended consequences. When we start doing some of these things, it's very clear some of the things that could happen. Now, the positive things I said to do, there's a few that could be there, but in, 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 and I'll get to some that definitely could happen, but they're more our actions, not the actions of nature when we go jacking around with it, right? So... If I make a plant specifically to be sprayed with an herbicide, the idea that I'm going to end up with super weeds is like something that a, a, a fifth grader with a reasonable IQ could figure out. They knew that was going to happen. They didn't care. They just saw it as an opportunity to make more money when it did. We'll just make a new chemical. We'll sell them that too. And then we'll tell them we need both, need both of those chemicals. Then we'll modify the plant to do new things, stack another gene sequence in it, sell them even more seed with more patents in it that will last longer so that when our patents run out, the new patent on a top stack gene is still in force so we control our intellectual property for a longer period of time. So screw the world. We don't care. Eat the poison. Shut up. Accept the super weed and do what we say. So that's the unintended consequences for the farmer using the product. It's actually the known consequences. That's why I call them clear unintended consequences. The next is, in big business, there's a flat reality, especially once you're a public company. Quarterly returns trump honesty in big business, period. If any piece of information will damage my quarterly data, my quarterly report, hurt my stock price, I must bury it. In fact, if unless I'm in direct violation of the law, which is subjective, by not disclosing the information, I am actually required by law under what's known as fiduciary responsibility to not release the information. 
In other words, the good of the company is seen as more important than the good of anybody outside of the company if I'm operating the company for the purpose of profit. I have a financial responsibility to ensure the company makes a profit for its shareholders. So the law actually requires companies like Monsanto to lie or gives them convenient cover fire to lie. And that's how a CEO can come out and say, I'm proud that we lied and not be put into a federal penitentiary. Because it's, it's a bigger shield than the Fifth, the Fifth Amendment. It's not just I don't have to testify against myself. It's I, I have fiduciary responsibility here. I, there's no, there was no compelling legal reason that I was compelled to give that data. Therefore, I was compelled to not give the data. Now that you've compelled me to give the data, of course I'll give you the data. But when no one was asking for it, I was fiduciarily uh, obligated to retain the data and not release it. And you have a CEO that's responsible for the death of, of thousands of people the cancerous infection of thousands of people, the destruction of groundwater, the destruction of an entire town reputation, walking around free and still flying around in a G5 jet. Because of that, because it's, a, it's legally the case that the quarterly returns and reports of a business trump honesty in big business, period. The next is the patenting of life forms. I don't think life forms should be patented. And if they're going to be, we should handle it a lot more, let's say, the way it's handled with trees. So in a tree, if, if I've created the new apple, the Jack Spearco apple, and I patent the genetics of that apple, and I say, not only is the name Jack Spearco apple patented, or trademarked, I should say, but the, the genetic apple itself is. So there's two ways to do it. I can trademark the name, or I can patent the variety, or I can do both. So if I just trademark the name and say this is a Jack Spearco apple, well, let's say Darby Simpson from Simpson Family Farms wants to start growing it and feeding to his pigs. Well, he can go out and grow it all he wants. He can graft it on other roots. So I can do whatever he wants with it. He can call it the Darby Simpson apple. There's nothing I can do about it. It's now up to us to both market our variety. Okay, But if I patent it, he owes me a royalty to produce it. Okay, Now, let's say he buys some patented Jack Spearco apples, plants them on his farm, Harvest the seed from those apples, plants them, and they grow. They're not going to grow what you call true to type. They are going to be cross-pollinated. They're, they're, that's why we clone trees. But they might take many of the characteristics that I like and bring them forward. If he starts working with that, and some of those genes pass through, and he even crosses it with another apple, and he produces a new plant, and he calls that plant the, the Darby Simpson apple, he perfects it, and he begins grafting and cloning it, he can patent it. And I can't go after him because my genes are somewhere buried. It's, it's bullshit. Like, my patent only protects this first version of my life form. Well, in, in, in soybeans, that patent carries through. Your plants could have been cross-pollinated 50 times down the line, and Monsanto can go in there and find a single gene that they own the IPR to and say, you're violating their patent. So if we are going to have patents on varieties... They should cease with the variety itself. If it outcrosses, intentionally or unintentionally, the patent should die. Plain and simple. And it doesn't. So the fact that they take that approach is, is incredible reason not to trust them. And then the dangers of outcrossing. When we start modifying these things to do something, and we haven't really done the research to know what happens 20 years down the road, and that shit just starts outcrossing all over the place. And you end up with these wild versions of these genetic plants growing in drainage ditches, like has happened in Oregon, 
as one one particular example where we know it happened. You run into the, the potential for invasive species of these plants. Well, they're productive. Well, sometimes when they start to outcross with a wild thing, they actually become weedy, and they're no longer productive, but they carry the survivability traits of the genetic plant with them when they outcross. So there's a lot of danger there, and my problem isn't that it exists, is that they lie about it. Oh, it'll never happen. And then it does. Like, oh, well, we'll change what we do a little bit. And we'll, and by the way, we'll oversee ourselves. And we'll let you know if there's a problem. So I just can't trust the people behind it. Again, because they're lying about it. Then the historical misinformation campaign of lies. The, the big one is what we talked about today. That we've been doing this for thousands of years. You can't trust people that lie to your face and don't blink when they do it. Again, selective breeding of jalapenos or corn or tomatoes is not genetic modification. It's selective breeding. They're two different things. And now the same people that have lied to you for two decades. Oh, we've been doing that forever. Oh, we're doing it now and it's different. Do you get that? How can you trust people like this? Right? And then the next thing is the creation of farmer dependence. So as long as I own the life form, and that gene is mine forever and ever, amen, then if you want to grow what I have, you must come to me and I control the market. Agriculture should not be a monopoly in any aspect of it. It's too important, and I believe that the ability and the, the ability to grow your own food is a fundamental human right. Now, you don't have a fundamental right to a place to do it. You have to acquire your own property, and the, I believe the possession of private property is a fundamental human right. So I think that when you start controlling that, we've got a real problem. And the outcrossing has the potential to damage all the things that are not affected by this right now and leave control of our entire global food supply or the majority of our staples in the hands of just a few people. I don't trust that. Neither should you. Right? The next is the depletion of soil this will continue to cause. So one of the worst things that ever happened to mankind and the best at the same time was figuring out that we could pour acid on rocks and we could extract things like phosphorus and potassium and that like in making certain uh, uh, fuels, we could get nitrogen. And then we could take nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, the three things that plants need, right? It's got electrolytes. It's what plants crave, right? Okay, that thinking, some of you know where that's from. Brondo, right? Yeah, you just feel like that's where we're living in. We're living in the idiocracy. But we figured out those three things make plants grow. We started dumping it on fields, and the plants grew. And the Green Revolution was largely fueled by mechanization, mechanized harvesting, mechanized weeding, and mechanized planting, and chemical fertilizers. But what happened to the soil? The soil began to be depleted at record rates. I don't have to care about the soil anymore because all i got to do is dump more fertilizer on next year, and fertilizer's cheap. Well, if we start doing all these genetic modifications that make plants able to survive in harsher and harsher conditions, there's less incentive to take care of the soil. And the real health in the plant and the real health in humanity comes from the soil. So if we can do these modifications without persecuting farmers, without creating farmer dependence, and in such a way that, yes, this is more survivable, but you should still be taking care of your soil, maybe there can be an upside. But right now, that's not where we're going. That's not where we're headed, and that's not the track record that we have. 
So my final thoughts on this are I'm cautiously optimistic that at some point humanity will gain control of this stuff and use it where it's necessary and where it makes sense for the best that we can do. So I'm not saying it'll be great, but I'm saying there is good that can come from it. But right now, the people in control of it are not people you can trust. You cannot trust a person who lies out of their face to you. Even when they're speaking the truth, you don't know what they're going to do with the truth. So Monsanto has all these new designer vegetables. They may be great things. Frankly, some of them may be things I would even want to grow. But I don't trust the source. They haven't earned our trust. They've actually earned our antitrust. They've earned skepticism. They've earned hatred. They've earned animosity. They are wholly deserving of every bit of bad public relations that they have and more. There are people that have worked for that company and others like them who belong in a prison cell for the damage that they've done to their fellow human beings and to the planet as a whole. So how can we trust them even when they're telling us the truth? This does this. I believe you. What will you do with it? Oh, we'll be responsible with it. We have our own group to watch over ourselves. We call it Monsanto Internal Affairs or some jack shit like that. I don't trust these people. But if we can take especially public university research and restore the chestnut tree that we damage, as long as we can do it safely, we almost have an, an intrinsic, innate, ecological, and humane responsibility to do so, do we not? There was a time when our eastern forests were so massive The chestnuts were so plentiful that farmers, when it was time to finish their hogs, that didn't want to let them free range, would take a cart into the forest and a number 10 coal shovel. It's a pretty big shovel. Look one up if you don't know what a number 10 coal shovel is. You never lived in Pennsylvania in the coal region if you don't know what a number 10 coal shovel is. But a number 10 coal shovel and would fill carts from the forest floor and feed pigs chestnuts. Make amazing pork. Awesome quality. And little farmers could produce these amazing hogs with no real cost. And the nuts were considered a public resource. If we can put that back, shouldn't we? Is there a way to do this responsibly? I think there is. The problem, though, even with public research is it's always funded by grants. And these are the people, these Monsantos, these Conagras, these Bears, they're always the ones that fund the grants. You can't trust the oligarchs. And then the key is, when this is done, who owns that right? Like one of the encouraging things on the chestnut was they've determined that the trees pass on the characteristics. So if I grow some of these chestnuts and they drop seeds and I plant them, the resistance to the blight is transmitted to the next generation. I've now begun the process where I can take and go forward with selective breeding. Now I can take the ones that are the most blight resistance and have the highest survivability rate and produce the largest nuts, just two traits, and I can plant just those. And I can do that for a generation or two. And then I can start producing, picking the ones that have a sweeter nut or a better flavor. I can begin the process of restitution to the system that we've damaged. But do you trust them to stop there? Are they going to say that, well, we forever own a patented right on that gene, and therefore every chestnut you put in the ground, you have to pay us a dollar for? 
I almost would make that deal, almost, because I have a chestnut tree. It's going to live a thousand years. Dollar? Fine. You start charging me a penny a seed, we got a problem for an annual. We got to start, we have to start thinking how to, if we're going to have this technology. And I, I said years ago, they'll never stop. They'll never stop. They'll never stop. How do we then, therefore, create oversight and control? And I personally think that one way that we might do that is to have a completely autonomous, independent agency that oversees genetic modifications and just tells the truth to the American people about them. With enough you know, horsepower to be able to do real research on them. Not with bias, not with fear. Because here's the danger. Here's the danger, guys. They're setting a trap for you with this chestnut thing and other things right now. They're doing it with golden rice. They may come out and say, you know what, this is so important to the American people. This is so important to our nation that this gene will not be patented. This will be an open source gene that will be available to all. They may make a very good case that this is really a great thing. They may show how it's actually very safe. They may say, we want farmers to plant chestnut trees again. We want chestnut trees in our national parks. We want to restore the American chestnut. And they'll put pictures out like the one I have today of men standing in front of trees so big that 10 men couldn't link their arms around them and say, we could have this back. We should have this back. And we damaged this and we should put it back. And they'll be telling you the truth. And the anti-GMO hysteria crowd will talk about it as though it's as dangerous is corn and soy. And even where they don't, they'll be made out to be that. And they'll take the fringe lunatics that are afraid of anything sciency, and they'll make them all of us. And they'll say, see, you're still not dead from eating our corn. These people don't even want us to plant chestnut trees that we don't own, that are for you. And the, you know, the onslaught after that could be GMO after GMO after GMO after GMO with widespread acceptance by the public who become skeptical not of the people they should be skeptical of, not of the people who have poisoned people, not of the people who have destroyed the environment, not of people who have ruined the lives of farmers, not of the people who have ruined entire towns. They'll be skeptical of the people that are skeptical of those people. And that's why we have to be open-minded about this. And we have to pick and choose what is really dangerous What is really dangerous in this world? There are things you can do with GMOs that could destroy the planet, like nuclear holocaust-level destruction could result from the inappropriate use of GMOs, but it could also result from the inappropriate use of nuclear technologies. But very few people are trying to get rid of the, uh, the aircraft carriers out there that run on nuclear power. Have you ever noticed that? Like all the anti-nuclear protesters, they never seem to be worried about an aircraft carrier. There used to be anti-war, too, but the concept of that boat with a little reactor in it, right? Could we actually make floating cities with that instead of weapons of war? All technologies taken to a certain level can become dangerous. It's our responsibility to harness them in an effective, safe manner. Understand there's always risks. Where do the rewards outweigh the risks? And not just for a few, but for all. That's the question to ask about GMOs. I remain cautiously optimistic about some upside potential in GMOs and a staunch opponent of genetic modification for the purpose of control of the world's food supply to make farmers into subservient, uh, indentured servants, basically, and to poison us. Those things should never have been allowed 
and should continue to be resisted, it doesn't mean that every element of this is wrong. But please be careful of the sources that you trust. And when someone has lied to you repeatedly, don't even trust them when they're telling you the truth. It's not that they're lying when they're speaking the truth, but they're lying about their intentions of what to do with the truth. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.